are here. In the 11FS offices in WeWork Oldgate, London, for episode 50 of Blockchain Insider. This weekly show dedicated to the news of where blockchain meets crypto and crypto meets institutions. Today we bring you an interview with the amazing Amber Balde. We talk about is XRP a security, again, and the EOS mainnet nightmare. And I'm not alone today. I'm joined by, of course, Amber Balde, who is co-founder and CEO of Clover. How are you doing, Amber? I'm great. Thanks for having me. No, thank you so much for being on the show. Funnily enough, before we get started, i got to do an ad read. just wanted to say a quick word about our sponsors. Today's episode of Blockchain Insider is brought to you by Corda. Corda is an open source blockchain platform that allows businesses to transact directly in strict privacy. Using smart contracts, Corda enables complex transactions using real assets and legally binding agreements without the need for a trusted intermediary or a Colin G. Platt, for that matter. Corda is the result of a collaborative effort led by R3 and over 200 of the world's largest banks and tech partners. Apparently, it's ready to build on today, and the financial community is deploying Corda to manage their agreements and move assets globally. You can transform your business ecosystem with a platform selected by large institutions to build their future on. Go to Corda.net to learn more. And speaking of R3, well, they made the headlines this week and were all over Twitter. Um, Story from Fortune.com, blockchain firm R3 is apparently running out of money, sources say. So this comes uh, from uh, some unnamed former employees who say that R3 has missed internal financial targets set a year ago and is estimating that revenues are 10x short. And whilst other sources are describing the figure as being laughably off from where they wanted to be. Of course, Charlie Cooper's come out and said the MD of R3, he's disputed the claims, um, did not provide any specific figures, but told Fortune that the company has exceeded its revenue targets. Uh, difficult one to see what's going on here, Amber. Absolutely. I, I think it's uh, it's admirable that you led with the sponsorship from R3 and then uh, right into that news. Well, you know, people, uh, especially certain XRP, the standard type communities, certainly believe... Do you have that... to call it XRP the standard? Is yeah. that required? <laughs> no, but that's what they call it. It's I thought ca- it was just the hashtag. That, I don't know. Like, I, I, all I know is I get trolled to hell by these people. As we will today, no doubt. Yes. Uh, oh, it's going to happen. But essentially, like, there's definitely a view out there that everything R3 does is evil, and therefore, because we're sponsored by them, we must be evil too, which I'm not saying I'm not, but I think I, I'm, I'm definitely not. I'm definitely not just PR for them, right? So we got to report this news. And, and with all these things, I wonder if the truth is somewhere in the middle, right? I mean, are they running out of money, or are they not just doing quite as well as an old projection? It, there could be something between those two. Right. Well, I mean, how much money were we talking about? They had raised at 107 million. Yeah. Um, and we're three years into that. So the, I think the the story there is really more about the potential burn rate mm-hmm. um, of the organization. And I think it's, it's really a testament to the difficulty of making this technology work for large enterprises. And R3 is a, a for-profit corporation as opposed to somebody like Hyperledger or EEA that are 501c6 nonprofit um, trade organizations, you know. So uh, when, when you have to spend money on educating people globally, mm-hmm. it's different whether you're doing that out of the goodwill of your heart as a standards organization or whether it's part of your business model. It's that profit motive that makes it really difficult and there's only so much runway you can get before you can convert and you're looking for the revenue to come. And I think people have now started to understand the tech, but also to your point, Large financial incumbents have long roadmaps. They've got a lot of uh, legacy systems. And if you're 
trying to transform those systems, you've got to get on the roadmap, and you're not only going to get on the roadmap of one organization on the sell side or the buy side, you've got to get all of them. So you've got this herding cats problem that's really challenging. Absolutely. Um, I mean, getting together uh, 10 organizations to do a single pilot is a Herculean task, mm-hmm. and then you might not even bring that specific one uh, mm-hmm. to, to the production phase or even to pilot. It might stagnate as a prototype or a POC. So the throughput, uh, and you can see that in what IBM has done as well. They've they've said that, I think publicly, they've said that they've done thousands mm-hmm. of uh, POCs at this point. And it's it's really a numbers game of, of at some point getting to the point where you can say we're in production. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's a very difficult uh, road to get there. And, and production more so than one transaction in production or 10 transactions in production. It's all of the daily volume going through it as well. So it, it is challenging. Um, there's the classic quote, which is people tend to overstate the pace of change and understate the impact. Like the pace has definitely been overstated here, but I don't know that many are arguing the impact at this point. Maybe they are. Sure. Uh, it's the difficulty of trying to monetize this underlying ledger as, as a platform itself, rather than waiting until, say, the the internet was kind of established and then launching a business on top of it. So the first mover advantage, um, you know, to the, to the early movers go the spoils, I think is what a lot of these folks are thinking, but it's, it's a, a big mountain to move. It is. And speaking of moving mountains, story from Coindesk.com and another investor lawsuit has come to claim that XRP is a security. Before we got started, you wrote down uh, what defines a security according to the Howey test. You were supposed to, to say that I remembered these off the top I of mean, my head I mean, before all the time. we <laughs> got started, you told me that you'd remembered off the top of your head the Howey test. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so when, when we're looking at whether or not something might be a security, right, where generally they're evaluated against whether or not there's an investment of money, uh, whether there's an expectation of profit there, whether this is a common enterprise, so not just a, a bespoke event, uh, and if there's some kind of promotion that goes into generating that profit. It's a pretty simple test. And so investor Vladi Zakinov, I hope I said his name right, uh, filled a, filed a class action lawsuit on Tuesday, uh, which if it's class action, I'm guessing there's more than just him involved, naming Ripple Labs, XRP2, uh, the company's licensed money service business, and CEO Brad Garlinghouse himself, and 25 other anonymous persons as defendants. The claim was submitted to the Superior Court of California. It centers around the allegation that the XRP token, which is commonly known, is apparently a security controlled by Ripple, which we know Ripple has 60%. We know that they've said that they're committing to releasing a certain amount in a transparent way, but they have most of it. But there's there's arguments on either side here. I spoke to Brad Garlinghouse last week at Money 2020, and he said, well, look, we were gifted this. We were given, it was given to us by previous founders of of a different organization and, and gifted to us. Can you see why there's confusion here? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think the XRP question kind of typifies the the debate or the difference between something that uh, comes out of kind of nowhere, this decentralized kind of ether when in it with a currency like Bitcoin, where people aren't really thinking that there's a single entity you could go and take to court, versus when you have a, a profit-seeking enterprise, again, uh, at the, the heart of the question here. And, and they, they can be taken to court, they can profit off of what's happening there, and they do set an agenda and a strategy. So it's it's a lot uh, more of a gray space. It is harder. I think that point about if 
with Bitcoin, like who's the CEO of Bitcoin was one of my favorite questions of all time. Well, there's and a it, guy with a Twitter handle that's like CEO of Bitcoin, so I assume it's him. Oh, well, there we go. We found him. Twitter, <laughs> Twitter is the truth. There you go. Exclusive right here on Blockchain Insider. Um, Twitter is the arbiter of truth. But there's a, there's a great thing um, Adam Ludman from Chain.com said. I think he was um, speaking to one of the Senate subcommittees on something at some point, and I'll try and find out what that is. But he was sort of saying, if I mine gold from the earth, who do I have a contract with? Do I have a contract with the earth? And it's a similar thing with Bitcoin. It's kind of obvious that there is no profit-seeking entity that's selling this thing. The mere fact that somebody has a lot of this thing and is selling this thing invites the question. I mean, it also depends where that earth is. There's certainly disputes over land rights, Mm -hmm. uh, but we've gone out and drawn lines around things and decided that some things are owned by some people and other things aren't. Ripple have pushed back fairly hard against this. They're saying uh, this is just another example of an extortionist bringing forth an opportunistic suit that lacks merit. We feel confident that the claims regarding XRP are completely unfounded in both law and in fact. Um, so, so which, which part of the Howey test is it that they're actually disputing? I assume they have an expectation of profit. Yeah, I think that's the <laughs> there's, piece. Yeah, like, investment of money. I mean, it, it really depends. I, I think, you know, regulators are not lawyers. Uh, it's, they, they might have been lawyers in a past life. But, you know, lawyers might be out to figure out where's the loophole and how am I going to, like, find the gotcha in this case for their client. But regulators aren't really out to, to say, surprise, it's a security yeah. <laughs> on anything. They're trying to act in the public good and to set precedent that's going to be used broadly across a, a number of cases. So it's very difficult to guess in which direction these things are going to fall. But they're, I, I believe that what they're doing is, is simply trying to be as um, as thoughtful as possible, because whatever they say is going to have much longer reaching impacts across any number of other uh, coins that originated not from the ether. <laughs> Indeed, as it were. Um, I, I think particularly the claim here in the class action suit is that Ripple uses the funds it raised from the sale of XRP to fund its business ventures. The company then offers XRP for sale to the public at large. I think on that second one, Brad Garlinghouse would say, no, they don't. They they sell it through exchanges who then sell it to the public at large. So there's a gray area there for sure. And the plaintiff and the class are effectively powerless to control the success of Ripple and XRP. Mm-hmm. The plaintiff and the class member's investment is is substantially at risk without uh, nay security. Yeah, if anything, it's uh, it's a bad security. You know, kind of like uh, like ICOs. They don't actually give you proxy voting rights. They don't give you specific kinds of claims. There's no preferred shareholder rights. Yeah. So in a way, they're kind of the the most bland and boring kind of securities. If they end up being being if securities. they go that way, and and so there's this really interesting question as well as is there a gap, right? Because if you think about subjective intent, right? People intend for this thing to have use. They intend for it to end up like Bitcoin at some point in the future where people are using this thing for a purpose. It runs without an obvious central uh, issuer. But to get it started, somebody had to issue it. And there are many examples of that. And there's this question about should there be a grace period to figure out, can you get from A to B? And can you issue A like it is a security? But then how do you get from A to B? Some, it's really not known. We saw the SAFT contract as being one route to gold, but there's, there's still so much to be found out. Here. Yeah, we have this kind of, it's this quantum superposition of states where <laughs> depending on how you look at it, it, it's functioning like a currency. No, it's functioning like a security. No, it's actually a commodity. And that's that's what's really most confusing for regulators is because historically it's it's always one thing. And now we've got this weird kind of, uh, you know, 
wave particle duality kind of thing going yeah, on, depending you, on how you look at I, it. And you've got to observe it to see. And, and your observer bias, you know, if uh, everything looks like a, if I've got a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So the observance I put on it obviates my decision for what it becomes. But don't worry, Coinbase.com, there's a, a path to listing SEC regulated crypto securities. So they're announcing that Coinbase is on track to operate a regulated broker dealer pending approval by federal authorities. If approved, Coinbase will soon be capable of offering blockchain based securities under the oversight of the US uh, SEC, uh, Securities and Exchange Commission, and the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, FINRA. There are now many types of blockchain based digital assets, and in the US, some of these will obviously be subject to SEC oversight. I think we're seeing that um, more and more. Securing these licenses would bring us a step closer to their goal, which is to be the most trusted way their customers buy, sell, and use many different types of crypto assets. I like this statement as well. They can envision a world in which they may even work with regulators to tokenize existing types of securities, bringing this space the benefits of cryptocurrency-based markets like 24-7 trading, real-time settlement, and chain of title. Uh, They believe this will democratize access to capital markets for companies and investors alike, lowering costs for all participants, and bringing additional transparency and inclusion to the ecosystem. So it's like, one, we think we're going to figure out how to fix uh, the ICO space, and two, by the way, we could go after capital markets. That's how I read that. Do you, do you see it the same? Yeah, this one's really interesting. I mean, in a way, they're certainly making a, a play off the slowness of the rest of the incumbent financial industry to be able to wrap their heads around this and, and bring um, crypto tokens into the existing processes and workflows. So instead, they're saying, we're just going to do this kind of greenfield from the ground up. But hey, now that we've got that infrastructure, when you tokenize other things from the real world, we're actually going to be able to work with that stuff too. So that could be a potentially highly disruptive play long term. Although, what I think is also interesting about it is that, um, you know, the the cypherpunk dream of all of this happening in a completely decentralized and democratized kind of a way (laughs) is not exactly playing out. We're just uh, ending up with new institutions that have new technical capabilities. Absolutely. So there's uh, Richard Crook, who's from RBS, put out a tweet quoting George Orwell, where I think it was Animal Farm, the pig looked at the man and the man looked at the pig and they couldn't tell the difference between each other. Paraphrasing, I don't remember the exact quote, but but that is where we find ourselves. Yeah, be afraid to stare into the abyss lest the abyss stare stare back at you. There's always opportunity out there to create other alternatives. It's not like um, Coinbase doing what Coinbase is doing now is the end-all be-all of what's going to happen in the space. But um, the the technical challenges to creating other sorts of alternatives when you have this kind of power aggregation into these new entities, um, I think the community should be having a lot of discussions about what it is they want to see there. It's compelling, isn't it? Because uh, here you have West Coast Tech funded. Uh, one of the main investors is Andreessen Horowitz, you know, kind of poster child of the winner-take-all platform, building a winner-take-all platform for financial markets. And this is an example where there's a few interesting things going on in this story. One, which is crypto assets are nice, but security tokens, real-time settlement for existing asset classes, that's that's what gets the incumbents really, really excited about this space and, and possibly even makes everything look a lot more legitimate because they go, aha, tokens, we could use those too, which is kind of nice. But would you want to therefore yield to a winner-take-all platform to get there? Well, the, the financial industry is wide, right? So, so 
some some of these um, securities that people are most familiar with and that retail investors uh, access the most are relatively vanilla in the way that they trade and the way that they settle. And I would kind of compare those to something like the shift from calling a, uh, a travel agent to being able to book your airline tickets online. So you might see a piece of the pie move um, for those sorts of vanilla securities over to some of these new next-gen institutions. But uh, there's lots of highly complex instruments that are not particularly available to the general public uh, that you know they probably don't want to touch, first of all, but that banks will continue to be at the forefront of. It's interesting to me that Coinbase are looking at doing uh, a lot of stuff for professional investors, now becoming a broker-dealer. They're looking at becoming a custodian. It, it, it strikes me almost like the strategy is to be all things to all people, whereas on Wall Street, we typically saw a separation of those duties. Well, that separation of concerns is also yeah. regulatorily imposed. Uh, I think Gemini might have also run into this as well in trying to become a custodian as well as an exchange. There's there's reasons to have those things differentiated. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, you know, the I remember also when a couple of the banks stopped letting people fund their Coinbase accounts from their credit cards and people got all upset, you know, this is bank interference. But really, you know, you can still use your debit card, uh, which is, you know, money you have, mm-hmm. as opposed to your credit card, which is money you don't have. And you cannot fund uh, an existing broker-dealer account at a tra- traditional brokerage from your credit card because it's, it's considered a mar- margin lending. Uh, so in a way, kind of, you know, you wanted to be seen as this legitimate broker-dealer. Congratulations, you got your wish. Well, now you're going to be regulated. Now we're going to have this separation of concern. And yeah, they're growing up. And it's interesting that the dynamics of that, as you say, separation of concerns, it may not be compatible with winner-take-all platform. And it's going to be interesting to watch that play out. But we also saw, of course, they acquired, was it one of the uh, relayers, one of the one of the DEX relayers? Was it Zerox Relayer? I can't remember their exact name uh, a couple of weeks ago. So they're, they're definitely hedging in terms of, well, if it does become decentralized exchange, and that's where it goes. But maybe the first incarnation is this big centralized entity, which can get all the requisite regulatory licenses to operate and gain scale. And then they can move with the times with the money they made. And, and how many institutions have we seen historically that have aggregated power and then freely given it away? <laughs> yeah, I was trying to uh, I was trying to give them a, a fair leg there. I, I, I can't see it either, because once you find yourself in that position, it's very difficult to give away the margin that you would, you would uh, clearly have. All right, next story comes from Hacked.com. The CFTC have widened their cryptocurrency manipulation probe, demanding trading data from exchanges. I guess the US regulators have demanded that several cryptocurrency exchanges hand over trading data um, tied to an ongoing investigation. The request, which was initiated by the CFTC, is part of a six-month probe into whether Bitcoin futures contracts are distorting market prices. The price manipulation probe was launched in December, shortly after CBO and CME introduced their Bitcoin contracts. According to several sources, CME asked four exchanges to share their trading data, Bitstamp, Coinbase, Itbit, and Kraken. Although the exchanges provided some data, all Ultimately, they refused to grant comprehensive information to CME. Interesting one. To your previous point, like, welcome to the party, but also there's there's a price to pay. Like, if you come into this system, there are rules that are set up. Um, if you try and continually fight the system, maybe you never hit scale. If you try and go with the system, you might have to follow its rules. It's an interesting challenge. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think a lot of people would agree that um, the prices of many of these coins have been heavily manipulated <laughs> for the last several years. And it's it's only once we have these kind of products on the bleeding edge of this membrane between the, the physical underliers and the kind of more traditional um, securities where the, the future products are sitting that now you've got people that are up in arms and upset about it that can actually get something done with a regulator. So will it 
be good? Will it uh, just shine an unintended kind of uh, acerbic light? You know, I guess uh, light is the best, sunlight is the best disinfectant, right? I guess we'll see. I have no opinion on this one. <laughs> well, well, the really interesting thing about uh, a lot of the crypto assets is, of course, they're an open data set. So you can see there are lots of forensic companies, your elliptics, your chin analysis, your block ciphers, who, with very simple tools, you can start to perform the analysis that you would dream about in traditional asset classes because the data comes at you in all different spreadsheet forms and so on. So it's relatively trivial to spot the illicit activity if and where it does occur. So I'm, I'm not surprised this investigation is happening. But what does surprise me is the apparent um, and alleged kind of lack of uh, sharing of trading data and or like cooperation here between some of those centralized exchanges that were named and some of those institutions, especially if they're going for the licenses, some of the bit larger ones. Yeah, I mean, we're trying to coordinate things globally where these uh, these tokens now trade across all kinds of borders. Uh, and they're not simply uh, all within a specific jurisdiction where you can compel information from a central place, which certainly adds an additional wrinkle uh, to recovering the information. But I, th- I think we need to be cautious of thinking that simply because the information or the, the data bits are out there, that it's easy to turn data into intelligence. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it's relatively easy to collude and act collectively behind a variety of anonymous addresses in ways that it's very hard to suss out what's really going on under there. Yeah, there's the obvious stuff that you can spot, but the really clever people are, are able to continue to But manipulate. they are very thinly traded, a lot of them. So, I mean, uh, it's, it's pretty easy to go out and... Uh, move the market and a lot of it's wild west and you can see why the the coinbase and the likes have stuck to the uh, more liquid crypto assets and have uh, gone for the ones that look more obviously like a commodity versus the ones that could be construed as a security it's a challenging place that they find themselves in and there's a lot of like teething problems that these organizations find themselves with and realizing that holy crap the stuff wall street does is done for a reason like this stuff (laughs) shocking it turns out that this was all there on purpose painting the tape you know uh uh, yeah, volume volume washing, all of this stuff. It's like the 80s are back in force. You know, if anybody yeah. ever watched Wall Street, you know, good old Michael Douglas movies. But uh, yeah, it's it's that all over again. It's just people are wearing hoodies instead of fancy shirts. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Like it, it strikes me that um, Silicon Valley, um, if you use that in air quotes rather than the physical location, is is kind of learning a lot of the lessons of financial services. And some of this stuff, especially in capital markets, like it can take a career to learn this stuff. And it's, it's pretty complex and the language is complex. And there is something to me that and I want to get your thoughts on this about can we change the nature of how regulatory reporting is done with a new tool set typically it used to be like hey you must submit these bits of information and how you do it's kind of up to you but it must have these things in it whereas now we can start to move towards a different standard set have you played with that idea at all absolutely I mean part of what we were working on with the zero knowledge settlement layer uh, on on top of quorum but was this selective disclosure Mm -hmm. idea wherein it's not about sending all of your data up front um, and you're enforcing that kind of disclosure at the application layer rather than, say, having, you know, backdoored God keys to the entire system. And, you know, you can create a system that has a minimal amount of trust and a a solid amount of disclosure. But where the challenge is, I think, is that the more people that flood into these markets, the less the overall philosophy and ethos of the collective resembles the initial first early adopters, Mm -hmm. right? And so, it, it's it's the growing pains of that community, but there are certainly people that 
don't really care about anything except trying to figure out where the next dollar is to be. Yeah, the, the profit motive has taken over to a certain degree. And it, there are parallels with the early internet. If you talk to a lot of the cypherpunks behind the internet movement and you look at the internet today of winner-take-all platforms and uh, kind of uh, business models based on ad revenue, it, it's not what they envision. Net neutrality. Yeah, yeah well, precisely. So there's, there's a whole bunch of things that uh, there is this constant tension of like new wave of hope with technology and then market forces and the, and that tension is constant so how do we start to redress that completely free market forces were supposed to fix all of this <laughs> oh if only <laughs> but didn't you know they fix everything Absolutely. <laughs> right next story we have comes from the nextweb.com i like this title the eos mainnet nightmare how not to launch a blockchain network in a year-long initial coin offering uh, block.1 raised four billion dollars for its blockchain and smart contracts platform eos its launch was going to happen on june the 2nd 2018 we're recording this on june the 12th the whole eos saga began when hackers managed to gain control of block.1's zendesk account and used it to send phishing emails less than a week away from its mainnet launch a chinese internet security firm found several vulnerabilities in the network but following the media reports eos denied any delay stating that the bugs have already been fixed or are in the process of getting fixed and then eos went ahead announced a bug bounty program with heavy rewards for developers wow yeah, security is hard. Um, <laughs> you know, usually this these kinds of systems should be completely audited ahead of time. And hopefully those kind of reports could even be published publicly in something that, you know, lauds itself for its transparency. But uh, how how these um, the groups and the, these kind of core developer groups of these various uh, coins or blockchain networks are interacting with the information security community is super fascinating. And, you know, InfoSec people get more and more interested in what's going on over there, partially because they love to say, you know, the emperor has no clothes. And they love to say, uh, you know, you haven't learned anything from what we've been talking about for the last 20 years. But also because uh, historically, like, bug hunting and vuln hunting, it's very hard to place a monetary, you know, quantity around how much a, a specific exploit is going to be able to rake in. And in this case, if you have a vulnerability and you can exploit it, you can, on a mainnet, literally just take the money. So creating a bug bounty where you're only going to pay out 10K for a bug that might have, you know, be worth many factors of that is uh, kind of surprising. It kind of seems odd, doesn't it? I mean, there's a couple of interesting points there around like good old fashioned auditing actually still has a place. And if you've got $4 billion, maybe you can afford to pay somebody to do an audit. And there are plenty of good firms that do that today for, for many companies and many foundations. And they even like a lot of open source protocols use this. I mean, a lot of open source projects use it. The, I know the, the Kubernetes and the Docker guys and um, Red Hat and that's a common standard practice in uh, free open source software, open source software, enterprise software but these projects seem to eschew it in the name of like, oh no no, because we're developing the code and putting it on GitHub, you, we, we should have figured that because out Because there's anyway. more eyeballs on it, it's better but the thing is you need qualified eyeballs <laughs> it, Yeah, it doesn't matter if me, an unqualified idiot, can look at the EOS code, it matters if somebody who really, can, really knows what they're doing from a security vulnerability standpoint. I once heard somebody describe as well some of the proof of work blockchain as being just a giant bug bounty as well. So like, I guess it doesn't necessarily stack up, but the market cap of a given crypto asset that is proof of work based is in theory, it's bug bounty. Although if you broke it, then the market cap How would you liquidate it? Yeah, exactly. But it sort of makes sense to a certain degree because exploits are, you know, if you can do it, then it's way more valuable to take the asset. Yeah, I mean, you might have heard the joke that, you know, the the cloud is just somebody else's computer. Mm -hmm. But in this case, the blockchain is just all of our computers. Yes. And so when you have something that, 
that uh, infects uh, OneNote and can propagate virally like the one that was was found on the EOS testnet, that is potentially a completely catastrophic failure Mm. for the network. And now we have people talking also about moving from proof of work to things like, you know, proof of disk space, proof of space, and other things where you want to be allocating parts of people's machines to be doing arbitrary execution at any given time. Like the idea of arbitrary remote code execution, like literally is what you try to do (laughs) when you're compromising a system, not something you sell uh, to the highest bidder. So the security boundaries and topology of of this stuff is super complex. And it's really exciting that people are trying to come up with all these wacky new ways to do decentralized computation. But the stakes are super high from a security, a, a monetizable security standpoint. It's almost interesting to me, though, that sometimes naivety brute forces and mistakes are made. But actually, if you don't have the naive people crawling around in the dark, they don't look upon it. A thousand monkeys at a thousand typewriters type of scenario. Like, maybe they will look upon something, but also the casualties along the way in terms of, like, uh, mom and pop who bought these crypto assets could be could be really challenging, which is no wonder that regulators feel the need to get involved. Yeah, and once you start, you know, throwing, you know, mining some of this stuff in some iframe on a website somewhere, and then it's going to download stuff, so now you're running a node on your computer, but then it actually is completely exploited um, or backdoored into the rest of your operating system. I mean, it's a whole new way to deliver malware. Um, yeah, it's it's bad. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's there's a, a lot of maturity that's needed. Um, and as if their security worries weren't enough, their constitutions also come under some fire. So there's an article on Zadina. Apparently this constitution has been drafted by the Block.1 team. And the fact that EOS will live by their words alone doesn't sound like it has no owner. Another thing is worth noting, apparently, is a clause that nobody is allowed to control more than 10% of the EOS cryptocurrency supply. Coincidentally, the exact amount of EOS tokens Block 1 publicly owns is about just less than 10%. Probably the company's way of saying that they do not want anybody to have more control over the EOS ecosystem than they have. Under the project's consensus algorithm, delegated proof-of-stake depots, a number of block producers are chosen to act as validators, which in EOS's case is 21. So there's been a lot of discussion about the voting fiasco here, like not just the bug bounty challenges they have, but they needed to get the votes in order for the thing to go live in the first place. They needed that 15% stake for the blockchain to become active, and they, they just can't get there. It doesn't seem to be happening. Nobody's got confidence in it. You probably see why. Adding complexity uh, just adds complexity. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know, they're they're trying to solve some of the challenges that other networks have run into, like the Ethereum governance process, for example, by explicitly stating things. But when you have those humans then that are in front of it, now we have someone to, you know, go yell at the system's not operating completely independently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know if they're going to be able to pull that together. It felt like dealing with some of the challenges of decentralization by coming back down the spectrum towards human intervention and centralization and in so doing actually created a bunch of problems that they weren't expecting because they thought they were more decentralized than they are possibly. I'm trying to, I'm reading tea leaves here, but that feels what it might be. Yeah, no, I think you're exactly right. Governance is just extremely hard. And especially when you're trying to, essentially what you're, they're trying to do is to create standards to, um, to and this governance process that encompasses the behavior of things that haven't happened yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and trying to predict all of these sorts of edge cases, it's like, you know, it, it, it's like going into 
into a completely new country and saying we're, we're going to stand this up and create our own form of government. And hopefully you're drawing on all of the, the prior government experience that you have. But in this case, we just don't have that much uh, experience to see how it, how it functions in the real world. We're on the blockchain frontier in many, many ways and lots to be done. We're up against it on time and there's a bunch of stories we didn't have time to cover. One from Coindesk, um, blockchains once feared 51% attack is actually happening quite regularly on some of the smaller market cap coins. A story on CNBC, $1.1 billion worth of cryptocurrency has been stolen this year and it was apparently quite easy to do. And a story from Zadina, South Korean cryptocurrency exchange hacks sees 40 million in altcoins stolen. So those hacks be happening. Alrighty, uh, time for our next segment, Tweet of the Week. Tweet, 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 tweet. It's the Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week. Okay, the Tweet of the Week this week comes from uh, the wonderful Vlad Zamfir. And he says, if the EOS constitution binds users to do dispute resolution according to the laws of Malta, does that include complying with uh, the general data protection regulation? And he was being very tongue-in-cheek with that. But it comes to the point about humans, right? Yeah. Exactly. I mean, Vlad's a gem, right? Like just kind of poking the bear on this one that you're trying to kind of have your cake and eat it too. Uh, and it's it, it's hard to thread that needle. I think as much as uh, a lot of times we want to escape the previous laws, but then we want to solve practical problems with decentralization, we often wander back into the world of previous laws and don't realize the consequences of having done so. And, and this is a humorous way to point it out, but it, it's a very fair point. Yeah, we still live somewhere. All of us still live on the planet somewhere. So until we have the kind of Kurzweil singularity, these things are going to keep coming up. I, for one, welcome the singularity. But if you want to learn more about GDPR listeners, our sister podcast, Fintech Insider, episode 220, we did an explainer all about uh, the general data protection regulation and what that could mean already that's it for the news but coming up next uh well i did an interview with amber so here's that interview great so i'm back here with amber who of course is co-founder and ceo of clover amber how the heck are you I'm great. What brings you to London? I'm here for a conference on, on Thursday. BAE is throwing a all-women cybersecurity conference. That's really cool. All-women speakers. The, the audience is anybody. But, yeah, yeah, I was going to say, like, ah, I want to get in and press my face against the glass, hopefully. <laughs> All are welcome. Yeah, I think it's called Reset, and it's really the first kind of all-women lineup. Uh, so it should be cool, yeah. Well, let us know how that goes. Be sure to come back on the show. But you recently left the world of financial services uh, incumbents and ventured out to build a startup. So before we get into kind of who Clover are and what they do, like reflect back for me on the last sort of two, three years in the industry, you know, what has been the key learnings? What did you take away from kind of the last couple of years? Wow, it's been a roller coaster. Yeah, hasn't it just? (laughs) Um, Mostly up, uh, but, you know, poised for that, the loop-to-loops coming on the roller coaster, I guess. But uh, (laughs) my favorite bit. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's been really interesting. I mean, I started reading about and being interested in Bitcoin is a cryptocurrency, but more from a, a political and cybersecurity angle back in, you know, like 2011. And had always followed that, just thinking it was going to be this kind of niche toy of hackers and cypherpunks. And, you know, I thought maybe someday it would be traded on the FX desk at JP Morgan, where I was working already at the time when Occupy, Wall Street, and all this other stuff was happening. And, uh, it, you know, but that didn't happen. It was always like zero results on our internal search. So I happened to hear that there was this one team that was working on uh, not just blockchain, but machine learning and some cloud strategy and API stuff and moved over there to because I, I knew they were doing blockchain things, but first started in machine learning and 
you know, eventually aggregated the, the team together <laughs> and created the Blockchain Center of Excellence there. But it was a, it was a great journey um, to spend a lot of time working just with management at JPM, although we certainly did a lot of education and evangelism there. But to get to talk with central banks and uh, asset managers and also Fortune 100 corporates, you know, and, and hear how they're trying to use this blockchain or distributed ledger tech completely apart from what was happening in the trading space. And there weren't a lot of people at that time that were going back and forth that could discuss both. Mm-hmm. It kind of felt like a lot of people who had my job at other institutions had at some point been handed a PowerPoint um, that said, like, you know, you're in charge of the blockchain now. And it was just it was just strange that they were coming from this philosophy of how are we going to transform banking systems? Rather than what is it and why is it? Yeah. And where is the rest of this kind of community coming from? And so, yeah, I guess just because of that, I got to explain a lot of things to a lot of people I didn't really expect to. And it's, it's been really fun. Something interesting about going through that experience of um, being put in front of the clients and being put in front of the, the, the kind of the internal senior management and also bumping into a whole bunch of people internally that you would never come across. Like, what was the takeaway from that? I'm guessing people reacted differently at different times over that kind of two, three year period. Absolutely. I mean, there were times when people felt, you know, challenged, and they were worried that their business models were going to be under attack. Uh, At other times, it was very kind of hopeful and opportunistic Mm -hmm. that if we could find uh, a business model that was going to really be transformative, that there might be completely new top line revenue opportunities. And then, you know, figuring out how the entire industry was going to interact with what was happening in the public space, and having relationships of people that I had known for years that have been in um, Bitcoin, and now all these other kind of projects that have come out to hear from their side kind of what was happening um, out there. It it was uh, very fascinating. Isn't it kind of weird how those two worlds collided? It it was almost like Neo in the Matrix. You have the like life of the day job and life kind of outside that. And those two things actually became one and you were paid to do it. (laughs) Well, you know, I think uh, it's it's great that I've had this kind of platform and I'm very appreciative of it. But there are a lot of people at these institutions that know exactly what's going on. The problem is that these enterprises keep them in the basement and call them cyber and don't let them uh, ever talk to clients or management, or they see in information security as a check-the-box kind of an activity. But there's a lot of expertise already. These people have day jobs. We just need to find them. And typically, the my experience was exactly the same. When I spoke to information security, I would get through to that one person who really knew their stuff. Typically, extremely articulate, typically ridiculously intelligent, and would get it and say, oh, yeah, I already read about that. I I didn't have to inform them anything. I would just sit and start listening. And then my job was to go tell everybody else what they just said. And I was like, why is that the case? Like, why don't people listen to these people? There's an interesting cultural observation there. So what happened next? You've, You've obviously kind of left that world now to go form Clover. Tell me what is Clover? Yeah. So uh, what I ended up realizing through all of these conversations over the last couple of years is that building blockchain applications is hard. <laughs> and it's hard whether you are uh, a consortium of enterprises or whether you're a hobbyist out in you know your house. It's too difficult to get to the part where you're working on whatever your unique vision is, whether that is a new post-trade settlement system or whether that's something that looks like CryptoKitties. The development tooling uh, simply isn't there. And and furthermore, these uh, groups have been developing uh, their quote-unquote best practices, for what better or worse right now, and tool suites uh, completely independent of each other. Yeah. 
right? So if you're deploying something to a public network, the process is incredibly different than if you're deploying something to an enterprise or a permissioned chain. And I really, I fight back against the idea that permissioned equals enterprise and public equals uh, some sort of like proletariat kind of thing. Hear, hear. <laughs> you know, ideally we want the information to sit where it makes sense. And I can see, you know, um, I, I have gotten plenty of inbound inquiries of people that wanted to, say, use uh, the Quorum, for example, the platform that we were working on at JP Morgan. The, um, it's a privacy and enterprise-focused version of Ethereum uh, that wanted to use that as a side chain to mainnet Ethereum to, say, run their video game. Yeah. And they wanted to do that because the gas costs were going to be cheaper. I mean, performant and yeah. Yep. And then, you know, commit the results of those games back to the mainnet. So there's there's other reasons to use sidechains or, or permission chains as sidechains for scalability and performance and privacy and other things. And if you start looking at some of the second layer scaling solutions, sharding, plasma, Raiden, they start to look a little bit like the, a sidechain in, in some of the instances. So like we're going to naturally have to go there if these things are going to reach scale at some point. We're going to get, yeah, it's going to be a mixture of things. I, I still think that there's a, a, a use for permission networks um, from a simply a security boundary standpoint. You know, I think we were just talking on the, the or we're, we're about to talk about the EOS news bit, um, you know, of things that infect a, a mainnet. And so having networks of networks where you have security boundaries is not necessarily a bad thing. It's an imperfect metaphor, but the VPN and internet, like there's value in a VPN, there's value in an intranet, like creating security boundaries and firewalls makes sense for a lot of reasons. It's not the big revolutionary thing, but it by itself can solve a problem. And and if it uses the same set of standards and rules as the main internet, like you can see how the two would coexist. It also allows people to create more kind of fractal governance processes. Ooh, there's a sentence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you can fragment those things and then, you know, it's not necessarily about keeping people out. And I think the the concept of permission networks has historically, it makes people think keep people out. But you could have a publicly accessible network. It just, when you come in here, the rules are, are, are thus. And it's similar to something like Mastodon, which is a, you know, peer-to-peer federation system, which does not necessarily need a blockchain. Shocking, I know. Um, but depending on which Mastodon server you choose, you're abiding by a specific rule set um, of the keeper of, of those servers. So uh, I think the, that this network of networks we're going to get is going to look a lot more complex, but hopefully more functional um, than what we have now. And you asked me what Clover is. Uh, <laughs> but the, you know. It was a great rabbit hole. I enjoyed it anyway. Yeah, yeah. well, there's no way to get there from here right now with the tools that we have. So what we're working on is this um, developer tooling wherein you can use the exact same unified framework to deploy to a public mainnet as you could to an enterprise um, sort of consortium. And that, uh, you know, finding... To go back to what we were saying before about kind of this weird space that that we've inhabited between um, speaking to the cypherpunk kind of crowd and speaking to the C-suite, it turns out they have a lot of similar problems. For example, a bank consortium might not want to deploy to a public cloud for regulation reasons. A cypherpunk may not want to deploy to public cloud for surveillance reasons. Yes. Right. So if you can containerize um, this kind of process and make things scalable and usable, uh, you can solve both ends of the bell curve in a way that I think they're going to actually knit together over time. Interesting that like those two 
different perspectives have similar problems but coming out from a completely different angle it's the same thing that i was finding with strong encryption right and so um you know privacy advocates have fought for years for strong encryption uh which you know for the uninitiated generally just means that these these systems are not weakened and they're not backdoored in some way there's no god keys and businesses have seen some sort of god key as an escape hatch and and an enterprise feature but now they're starting to realize that if if we have shared mutualized networks and there's a God key and one person gets it and then another person gets it yeah. or a foreign government gets it. Uh, it's, you know, it's rabbit holes. Yeah, it's game theory playing out, right? Game theory when I win seems great. Like mm-hmm. this winner-take-all thing, if I win, great. But actually, if I realize I'm in a community and somebody else could also win, then suddenly I want the rules to be different. Exactly. And so when we, you know, th- this was a lot of the education that I was doing early on was, you know, stop thinking about these peer-to-peer systems as just Alice to Bob and person to person. And we started thinking about them corporate to corporate or bank to bank. But really, it's about sovereign to sovereign. So where are the trust boundaries uh, geopolitically, globally? They, you know, historically, we had these kind of centralized institutions like a trade registry, for example. It's not that technically we couldn't create a trade registry. It's that no one could really agree on what jurisdiction it could sit in. Absolutely. And so you couldn't trade 24-7 because, and you couldn't globally form capital. This is something I've been passionate about for some time is that as uh, somebody starting a project or a company in uh, sub-Saharan Africa and in Indonesia, uh, I can't access a global investor base. I can access a local one. If I happen to be in Silicon Valley, great. I've got a lot of investors in my back door and my valuation is 10x what it would be in another city somewhere else in the world just because of the amount of capital that I'm near. Granted, there's an agglomeration effect piece there where there's a a lot of talent and there's a lot of capital and there's a lot of uh, former founders who can help you and so on and so on but actually to get to the value of truly globalized trade you have to find a way to deal with that fundamental problem which is how on earth do i form capital and move capital globally and deal with the geopolitical issue at the same time and maybe that gives us a way to start to do that if we all play by that same set of rules. But you have to have that fractalization of the network. You have to have an ability for the rules to be one thing over here, something else over here, but still compatible at the higher level. That's a really interesting question. Um, Preston Byrne, for all he's uh, lauded and uh, hated, uh, he did often talk about Ethereum being a spine to a network of potential permission chains in 2014, bless him. And I think that idea of is not wrong. It's where we're heading, but what shape it takes is going to be interesting to see. Yeah, and um, being peer-to-peer, government-to-government is one thing, but what happens when uh, consumers and, and you know regular people, as consumers are in their daily lives, um, actually uh, are on public chains doing things, their daily activity, or you get, you know, Airbnb of the blockchain, what have you, and then uh, other corporates and institutions want to have access to that kind of information. Uh, so it's, it's just a matter of time before these corporate consortiums decide that they also need to reach out to public chain as well to access information there, um, whether that's cross-chain asset trading or not, might happen later. Yeah. Uh, but simply accessing that information right now would require a vast rewrite of your system or moving right. to something else. So this traversing the trust boundary, traversing the firewall intentionally without invalidating the kind of the trust relationship the data owner and the kind of data consumer had is, is arguably the the kind of the battle line and, and the future piece. I look at you know attempts by the Brave Browser and Basic Attention Token as being an interesting area to kind of play. Do you think it's going to move more into the the data space and the data processing space more so than just financial transactions? 
Oh, absolutely. Um, I especially think we're at this like very interesting uh, time with what's happening with GDPR and with the Cambridge Analytica scandal, which is basically just business as usual. Um, you know, that's not a data breach. That's just a business model. Uh, but people are people are waking up more and more to the way that their data is being used. But at the same time, they're very comfortable with the customer experiences that they've come to expect that are driven off of their data. So I worry that if this data starts to, you know, quote unquote, to use an FBI term, go dark, right? If people start to take their data and keep it away from these centralized data aggregators, then not only are they going to lose out on those customer experiences, but businesses are not going to take any take kindly to that. And we might get this kind of lobbying pushback against decentralization and against uh, distributed ledger technology uh, on a scale that we have not possibly seen yet. So I'd, I'd like to prevent that. <laughs> and part of that, you know, that's part of what we're doing with Clover, right, is, is um, providing the kind of tools that when you, uh, this enterprise consortium wants to flip a switch and say, just allow somebody to log in with their, I don't know, Uport or Civic or what have you, um, then maybe they start there. Maybe they start with just wanting to pin a Merkle route to a public chain, whether it's Ethereum or Bitcoin, mm-hmm. whatever. Um, but, you know, later on, as these, uh, as, as services become available that allows you to say, get that business value, the same kind of business value out of a private data set as you would have gotten by owning that data. Um, I think that's it's that's when the game changes. That's when the game changes because once you get to the point in which like nobody has more data about you than you, not even Facebook. Like nobody has more data about you than you, not even the government. Like you are the aggregate the ultimate aggregator of all your data. Now if there is a way with zero knowledge proofs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, to be able to uh, perform queries on that and to be able to identify the information that creates economic value on the back of that data, then great. Uh, And maybe that's more valuable than the winner-take-all platform has now. And maybe that's net upside to certain winner-take-all platforms. Maybe that's net upside to governments. Maybe that's net upside to me, the individual. But when anything seems like it's a win-win-win, it always feels like unachievable. But I mean, I guess it's a fair goal to go after. Well, you know, what we're we're trying to do with Clover, it looks a lot like something like Heroku and Ruby on Rails, to be honest. I mean, these are (laughs) this is stuff that allowed um, developers to be able to build things faster, uh, to be able to scale and deploy and bring DevOps into the play. And then at the same time, if you think of the blockchain as, as Ruby, Clover is something closer to Ruby on Rails. So you choose the components and you choose the libraries that you want to expose based on the sort of use case that you're building. And maybe sometimes that involves, you know, machine learning over private data sets and zero knowledge proofs. And sometimes it just uh, involves, you know, I don't know, uh, let's bring up CryptoKitties again, right? <laughs> I don't know. Um, some it, other kind of more uh, more practical things right now. And that's that's okay. Um, but so far, I think maybe like 1% of 1% of businesses have p- sunk money into exploring these blockchain use cases. Indeed. It's very expensive. There's expensive consultants involved. There's lots of legal negotiations involved. And so by empowering people um, to be able to build things themselves rather than yeah. have to go that consultant route, uh, you know, think of the explosion in websites and local sites that came online when Ruby on Rails became a thing. Not all consultants are created equal, by the way. But, yeah. <laughs> well, I think, you know, yeah, consultants, think. There, there are partners, though, right? Because yeah. instead of being 
able to build one case in three months and give over something that's unmaintainable that nobody likes. You can build 12 sites and give them over and have partner kind so of So com- contrast this to me because I think there's been the old blockchain as a service the idea around for some time. I mean, it's what Block started out to do. It's what the likes of Microsoft now claim they do. Even Oracle say they do blockchain as a service. But is this but is what they're doing This isn't different? blockchain that's spin up an instance of uh, spin up a node as a service yeah congratulations you have an empty excel spreadsheet like what do i do with this yeah so sure the uh using kubernetes in a way that allows you to be cloud agnostic is different than a single cloud provider providing a blockchain as a service that tries to capture an entire um pilot or you know use case within a single environment so i can hear my cto ewan behind the scenes going well i can use kubernetes to be cloud agnostic today what is the business model change because i always feel like it's a business model of government change is why you'd use blockchain, right? Uh, I mean, people are trying to deploy this new technology, but there's no way to do that with existing DevOps processes. So the business, you know, people ask, why don't you have a token? Don't you need an ICO? Just because there's a blockchain? No. Um, First off, a lot of the the applications that we would like to make available don't necessarily even need a blockchain. So we're focusing on on peer-to-peer technologies in general. Mm -hmm. Uh, Right now, certainly, a lot of the focus and the hype and the people that are waiting on us to to release this MVP that allows them to deploy and scale quickly, have blockchains involved. Mm-hmm. But longer term, I think um, you know, and and where uh, I was focusing on the quorum roadmap previously was around having the opportunity with this open source technology to create something that's best in class for the very top tier financial institutions in the world and make that available at the exact same cost basis of free to other places in the world that might not have power 24 hours a day or might not have um, equally available internet. And it's you can't just dump code in people's lap and call it a day. There's a lot of work that needs to be done to make that stuff anti-fragile, yeah. to bring in mesh networking um, and create kind of more self-healing peer-to-peer networks and to create different kind of proxying. And so it's that's just not something that you tack on later as a social good project. That's something that you architect for from the ground up. In the same way that we have privacy by design, yeah. uh, we're working on this kind of anti-fragility by design. And it's, it's all part of you know, one grand plan where sure everyone will you know point at Amber and say, "Oh, she's enterprise blockchain." Yeah. Um, but that's because I think if you can't solve enterprise problems, what do you do? You're just working with a, a, a vacuum kind of echo chamber of the powerless. Hmm. So we solve we solve problems at the top, and and it transcends to so others. I was talking to Sandra Rowe about uh, five, six episodes ago. I think it's episode 38 of Blockchain Insider. And uh, she talks about uh, the the kind of the project she's working on being like, yes, she's working with rural farmers to collect the pricing information of how much were they paid for um, commodity X, so coffee or cotton or whatever it may be. And that pricing information is something that she can then sell to enterprise. She obviously comes from an exchange background. She knows capital markets inside out and backwards. She knows how valuable that data is, but she's also solving a problem at the local ground. So you're having to deal with that last mile problem. And if you're not solving for that last mile problem and you're not solving for enterprise, then are you really making any difference? I think is a fair question. Absolutely. You know, I uh, was giving a talk for a while that was called Beyond Maximalism. <laughs> and it is kind of like a pokey kind of a statement. But I think maximalism in in all forms, it deters from us recognizing that most uh, solutions and most systems in the quote unquote real world are kind of this mix. And they don't really work for anybody, but they kind of work for everybody too. Yeah. 
And I would would love to have a, a future utopia where everything is completely egalitarian and it's a, you know, this beautiful kind of post-meritocracy. Um, but, but getting there isn't as easy as just moving to Puerto Rico, you know? Like, <laughs> we, need, we are starting from a, a world that already exists and from people that have incumbent biases and from businesses that already exist. And, you know, it's one thing to say we're going to burn down the banks and create a new financial institution, you know, fine, maybe we can kind of get behind that. Mm. But to say we're going to burn down all business everywhere mm. and create a new, completely new commerce system globally, uh, it sound, sounds difficult. Yeah, it sounds hard. And, and would you like the consequences of having done that? Because if you were to achieve your goal, you'd probably be dead. And everyone you know and ever met would be dead. So like the, the consequences of the thing you think you want is probably not what you actually want. So you're building a path out of today into tomorrow rather than fucking today and fucking tomorrow at the same person. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if we could make even incremental improvements in the way that um, people are able to uh, achieve privacy without having to become privacy experts themselves, that would be a meaningful shift, I think, globally. And, you know, maybe it's one thing for people who have the time to t- take the Facebook privacy security assessment that they pop up in your face every so often. And find the tiny <laughs> bit of text where you get the tiny next bit of text and you get to scroll and find, yeah, exactly. Or now with the GDPR kind of regulations, you log in and they've given you 300 radio buttons for different places to get your data that you have to individually click off every yeah. single one, you know. Um, but most often the people that are really uh, the worst off because of those systems are are the um, least, uh, the worst off economically in every other way in the world. And so um, it's, it's a human rights issue. And it's a, it's a business issue. You know, if we want to reimagine what business can be, it doesn't mean we have to burn everything down and start from, from the bottom up. But uh, can you position it as an opportunity for business as well? So we yeah. talked briefly about how uh, it's an opportunity for the winner-take-all platform to have a bigger data set uh, to work with. But the only way they get that bigger data set is by introducing actual privacy. Uh, the only way governments get a bigger data set to prevent crime is by introducing actual privacy. And, you know, kind of baking that in with software. What's the, the business case benefit for, for somebody else? If it's not just, if I'm not Facebook, then what's what's my business case to moving towards this world? Because banks and financial services companies understand their business model. They understand where they are. And frankly, look, it looks like the last 10 years of regulation being the issue have gone away. It's, it's off to the races now, surely. What's the motivation for moving in this direction for them? Uh, I mean, why don't we ask the CEO of Equifax? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, data used to be considered gold, and now maybe it's more like oil, and you're at risk of an oil spill in in some ways. So uh, again, I think you're right. Losing access to that data would be uh, tragic for for businesses as they operate today. But shifting the model so that they can still achieve that same business value without having to own it all in a centralized way could absolutely be transformative. And historically, people have always chosen convenience over privacy and security, mm-hmm. right? But maybe if, if monetization uh, or uh, economic incentives were thrown into that mix, uh, I certainly think that people, at least in the millennial generation <laughs> and beyond, who are used to this kind of microeconomics and like like-based, uh, you know, business models on, on Instagram and whatnot would absolutely figure out how to monetize their data uh, in a way that could create an entire new kind of gig economy. Now, would it be more dystopian or less? I, I don't know. That's a fair, fair question. <laughs> an interesting place to leave the interview. Uh, where can people find out more about Clover? 
Sure. Um, we're at Clover.io. It's C-L-O-V-Y-R. Mm-hmm. So it's not Clovier, it's Clover. No, it's it's Clover. And that's, um, you know, initially that was about highway interchanges and kind of the Cloverleaf interchanges, mm-hmm. right, of on and off ramps between networks, because I don't think it's a winner-take-all platform. We're just facilitating that kind of exchange. But now it's it's kind of transcended in my mind to being more about uh, this ecosystem of different things that come together, where for true sustainability, you need a diversity of elements that work together and balance each other. Amber Balde, thank you very much for being on Blockchain Insider. Thank you. All right, I have to thank our production team here. Uh, Laura, our producer, Terence, our editor, and assistant producer, Patrick. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Uh, if you like what you heard, um, subscribe to our podcast. Leave us a review on iTunes. Those reviews help us so, so much. Spread the word. Tell all your friends and colleagues to listen too. We'll have more Blockchain Insider next week. Goodbye. <laughs>